Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. This is the last book in our Bible, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. I love in chapter 1 where, especially on a day like today, where we celebrate and thank the Lord for the freedoms we still enjoy as a country, where it says that Jesus freed us from our sins. And it's a beautiful picture. Before we look at God's Word, let's pray and ask for His blessing. Heavenly Father, You are a good Father. You are patient with us as Your children. We thank You that You sent a suffering servant, Your Son, to free us from our sin by His blood. We thank You that we, as a nation, have not only enjoyed a freedom to a much larger level than most countries. We praise you for a God who sets national boundaries, but we haven't enjoyed, we have enjoyed an even greater freedom that is in Christ. And Lord, this morning, would you align our affections as we take the bread and drink the cup and make a common confession again that our only hope is in you. Lord, we pray for those who are in other countries this morning. We pray for those who are not enjoying picnics, who are hazarding their lives to keep the freedoms we still enjoy. We pray for their safety. We pray that in the midst of danger, you would draw their hearts to yourself, that our soldiers would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We pray for our country our president and his wife, our vice president and his wife, other governmental leaders. And God, would they soon bow to you, confessing you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That they would seek a wisdom that is not in their own heart. That they would bow to your reign as Lord. That you would work within the highest ranks of our government and bring salvation and truth and freedom. Lord, you've told us to pray for these things. You've told us to do so because you desire that all men should be saved. And so we ask you to work in our government and in our country. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation. The term is the English form of the Greek word apocalypsis. What does apocalypsis mean or apocalypse? Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean destruction. It does not mean doomsday, hence doomsday preppers. It does not mean the end of the world. It does not mean rapture or left behind. Matter of fact, that concept is absent from Revelation. The letters of the Greek word apocalypsis do not create a code for the date of Christ's return, not even when read backwards. I hope we as a church understand that. Some people are intimidated by this book. They're confused by the book. Some people have an unhealthy fascination for this book. So it's going to be very important for us as we move into the book of Revelation that we are very careful to interpret it and to understand it as 
John's readers in the first century church would have understood it. Here are two popular tendencies to misinterpret it often by over-interpreting it or to ignore it. And we don't want to do either. So let me ask you, what words come to mind when you hear the word revelation? As a book, what words come to mind? Just answer that in your own heart. Here are some of the more popular phrases. The end, the rapture, the number seven, four horsemen, the Antichrist, the number 666, judgment, the second coming, and heaven. And interestingly, two of those phrases most associated with people's understanding of this book, rapture and Antichrist, do not even appear in Revelation. Does that surprise surprise you? So what did the readers that received these messages in this book understand about Revelation? Interesting, two important words in Revelation, or three important words that are often overlooked. Let me give them to you because they're central to Revelation. Witness, throne, and lamb. Three concepts that our minds don't typically rush towards because we are we are caught up in the fear-mongering words and pictures that have been taken by Hollywood and created a narrative for. Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It is about the exalted Christ and his church. Revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in a difficult world. That's what Revelation is about. That's why John tells us a little bit about himself and his context in John chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 1. We've already gone there, but then he quickly moves towards what he really wants to tell us, and that is this vision of Jesus Christ that he has seen. And he just sort of systematically walks through what he looks like this white hair and these eyes that are flames of fire and a two edged sword coming out of his mouth and these feet that look like burnished bronze and. He quickly moves from who he is and where he's at on the island of Patmos to this glorious picture of an exalted Christ. But it's not just to give us a picture of the exalted Christ because he wants what he's about to write to have an effect upon someone or upon something. And what he wants to have an effect upon is the church. So immediately following in chapters 2 to 3, you have seven messages to seven different churches. Real people gathering in Christ's name in real locations in Western Asia. Revelation invites us to follow the Lamb of God. That's one of the key terms. In a radical, nonviolent witness to the world. He actually wants us to nurture a love for the Lamb that was slain and to inspire the church to be an effective witness to the world a world that is yet to be freed from their sins by his blood, Revelation 1, verse 5. That's the message of Revelation to us. It is a call to first commandment faithfulness, to love God with all your heart. And it is a command to the world to repent and believe, to convert because of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done and what he's about to do. That's the book of Revelation. And the danger is if we get sidetracked, then we miss the mission Christ has for his church. Chapter 1, verse 1, look at the very first verse. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, in a very peculiar way, a revelation that is Christ's and about Christ. I want you to look at one, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, because this provides an interpretive key to the whole book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That does not mean that you're at home and you're just reading out loud. It actually means when we gather in Christ's name like we are right now, to read this out loud in the gathered assembly, there is a blessing for that just for reading it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and, here's the interpretive key, who keep what is written in it. Okay, stop right there. So Revelation is not just a fanciful episode-by-episode intriguing picture of the end times. Revelation is designed to be obeyed. If it's not preached in a way, or if it's not understood in a way that this must be obeyed, then Revelation is being handled in a sloppy, hermeneutical way. Blessed are those who keep what is written in it. And then he gives this motivational purpose, for the time is near, or the end is near. So chapters 2 and 3 give us clarity as to what Christ desires for his church. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven, what's the next word? Churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, he's already interpreting the vision of this exalted Christ in chapter 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you're going to see this in chapters 2 and 3 for all seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. And that phrase will be used five more times, and it highlights the local churches in West Asia. These letters, these messages to the churches give us a window into the life of first century churches, their strengths and their weaknesses. Jesus is walking among these churches. He also uses this word for every single church. I know. And as he walks amidst highlands, he knows us. He knows everything about us. He doesn't just know what we know of each other. He just doesn't know what's on the surface. He really knows. He has this complete, divine knowledge of every single member that makes up this lampstand. And he knows. That's both an encouragement, I believe, but it's also a means of needed correction, isn't it? That brings us to the first message to a local church, the church at Ephesus. Here's, here's really, if we're going to put forward, what is, okay, what is the call when we look at this message, these seven verses? A church needs to repent when they practice a love-deficient separatism. Let me repeat that, and then I'll kind of make it simple. A church needs to repent when they practice a love-deficient separatism, or when rigid right belief is no longer motivated by love for God and others, it is no longer right. 
not biblically right. When rigid right belief is no longer motivated by love for God and others, it is no longer right. Let's read this message to the church. Revelation chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. We're going to look at all seven of these letters over the course of the next two months. And most of the letters break into seven parts, not making more than number seven and other than the letter makes, the letter is broken into seven parts. Some are only six parts, okay? So I want to kind of push the unnecessary numerology off to the side. And seven parts, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at an introduction, Okay, we're going to look at the body of the letter. We're going to look at the solution. We're going to look at everything so that we see sort of the uniformity of these letters to the churches. First of all, the introduction, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel, perhaps to the entire congregation, perhaps to an actual angel over that church, perhaps to the leaders of that church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the church in Ephesus existed actually in a major port city where you had a lot of people, international connections, and a lot of religion. The major temples were built to Artemis and to the Roman emperor. The temple Artemis was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It existed in what they prided themselves in as the metropolis of Asia. In every letter, it's going to include part of the vision of chapter 1, and this is going to be very important for us to get. Before he gives the strengths and the weaknesses of a church, he reminds them of of a part of the character of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us because no effective church change can happen. No healthy revitalization can happen with just a manual or even just write documents. True church change happens when we have an accurate and biblical view of Jesus Christ. Now, the others should be in order, but they cannot bring life until we get the person of Jesus Christ and his work right. We'll never be able to effect the change that he calls for. So look at chapter 2, verse 1, the second part. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks 
among the seven golden lampstands. What surprises you about that? I mean, we've already, the scriptures itself have already interpreted the stars and the lampstands, but what, what does that communicate to you? Before we just fly over this, he holds in his right hand and he walks in their midst. What does that communicate? Closeness, guidance, care, protection, intimate knowledge. See, Jesus isn't just speaking as a royal king, even though he is, and he's presented that way in Revelation 1. He speaks as a pastor, one who walks among the churches and offers guidance and counsel. The church at Ephesus needed to remember this. The church of Ephesus perhaps was the mother church from which the other churches were established. But what the church at Ephesus needs to remember is they're, they're not the one controlling other churches. They're not the one in the region that's calling the shots. They're not the one that everybody needs to look back to for direction. It is Jesus Christ who holds the stars and walks amidst the lampstand. We move into the body of the letter. Look at the strengths and weaknesses. We've already read chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And again, Jesus expresses this complete, this divine knowledge. I know. And he moves in and he first commends them. The Ephesian church sat in that port city underneath the shadow of false religion. And they were separating from it. And they were commended for that. And they were calling out people who said they were apostles. And they tested them. And they were commended for that. They were commended for a type of ecclesiastical separation away from clear false teachers, false religions. They would call out the pluralism or the syncretism or the inclusivism or the relativism or the secularism. And they were commended for that. Jesus didn't say that's unloving in itself. He actually commends them and gives them a well done for that. But the false teachers, chapter 2, verse 2, are clearly those who are evil. This isn't just a suspicious witch hunt. These men or women have clearly put themselves forward as false, evil teachers. Jesus commends this church for, he uses this with these words, not bearing with them. That's their passive attitude. Right? We are not going to accept other religions because every single religion has merit and people are really sincere. Because Jesus commands this church for not bearing with false religions, false teachers. And he commends them for, here's the active response, so a passive attitude, not bearing, and, and this, is, this is what proves that is their attitude towards them. They are testing them. That's an active response. A critical examination of a person's claims. Look at, look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. And in this, because of where they're located, in this metropolis, in this port city, he commends them for their patient endurance. It's interesting, back in Acts 20, Paul warned the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves would enter in and not spare the flock. 
He had warned them of that. And now that's being realized. If you go down and uh, he also says after he rebukes them, he says, but this you have. Look at verse 6. This is part of the commendation. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Do you know there are groups of people that have embraced idolatry and immorality on a religious level and, the, and Jesus Christ postured to them? How, what does the Bible say? He hates them. The only information we have of the Nicolaitans is here. There's really not a lot of background information on them. Uh, some say they're closely aligned or the identical group that's mentioned later on in chapter 2 to the other churches uh, when it mentions Balaam and Jezebel, but the defining characteristic of both is idolatry and immorality in a syncretistic way that sort of blends it all together and there's no clear distinction, yet it's evil. And Jesus Christ comes to that church and says, well done for separating. Well done for not bearing with that common popular attitude. Well done for testing them. But then, it's like the message changes abruptly. Because there's something toxic that is undermining the Ephesian church. It threatens the health and the very life of the church. If you want to look at it this way, underneath uh, all these good things, this, this clean separatism, underneath there is a moral and spiritual decay that is threatening the life of this church. Cold orthodoxy does not please Christ. This is the shift. Because right away he's going to say, but I have this against you. It, cold orthodoxy does not reflect fully who Jesus is. Cold orthodoxy does not say the right things to a lost and watching world. Cold orthodoxy is neither attractive nor effective. Rigid right teaching without love is not right biblical teaching. So here's the weakness. Chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you. That's divine displeasure that you have abandoned. So they didn't lose it. Right? They didn't misplace it. They willingly walked away from it for something else. You've abandoned it. You left it. And what did they abandon? The love you had at first. And this isn't just some simple slip because he says this in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and he's writing this to believers most of which we should assume are believers at this point and he's asking believers to repent and he's telling believers they've fallen and he's telling believers you've abandoned love and it's not enough for you to exist as a church just because you have a right doctrinal statement jesus christ demands that with that right doctrine there is right love seems like in the midst of battling against false teachers, the love they had for God and for one another was set aside. Right teaching, that's what orthodoxy means, right teaching. Orthodontist, straight teeth, right? Orthodoxy, straight teaching, is vital, but it's deficient if not accompanied by straight practice, orthopraxy. The Ephesian church had become mechanical, and lost its love for God and for each other. John wrote a gospel to the world, which at this time would have been the Romans, 
primarily. And he recorded Christ's word who said this. So here's a gospel to this, this Roman people. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Just stop there. How does, how does Jesus love? Were his disciples always on target? Were they always emotionally right in their responses? Were they always doctrinally accurate? Right? I mean, you just, oh yeah, that time. And, and if you give thought to it, you're like, they really did mess up. How did Jesus respond to them? Gentleness, patience, understanding. I love what John the Baptist uh, said about the Messiah, that he wasn't even going to put out a smoldering candle wick. You know how fragile that is as soon as you blow it out? And he wasn't even going to do that. And Jesus says, you need to love one another just as I have loved you. That includes in here that we suffer along with each other. Because we're probably going to continue, maybe not purposefully, but we're probably going to continue to hurt one another and to misunderstand each other. And Jesus says, I need you to love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another this way by this all people. So he's moving from in here to the world. This is that witness. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a right doctrinal statement. No, that's important, but that's not what Jesus said. Yes, we need right doctrine. But that's not how the world is going to know that we're Christ's disciples. He said, they will know if you have love for one another. Paul, who wrote a letter to the Ephesian church years before John wrote this message to the Ephesian church, said this in that letter, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Aren't you glad he threw that word in there? Bearing with, which means what? There are going to be times when we, what's the word? <laughs> we put up with each other. Why? Because we deserve it? No. Because Jesus put up with us. Jesus bears with us. And that's what he does to us so that we can do that to one another. Then he says, rather speaking the truth in love. See, it's not enough just to speak your mind either. Well, I just tell people what I think. Okay, that's a problem. I just say what comes to my mind. Okay, Proverbs says the fool does that. Speaking the truth, yes, truth, orthodoxy, in love, orthopraxy. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is talking to the church, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see this recurring theme. The Ephesian church knew this. They had been challenged to do this, and they still abandoned it. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But the love the Ephesians once had, remember? You've got to remember how you used to live as a church, how you used to witness to, the, to Western Asia. But the love they once had for God and others had gone cold and it was replaced with a harsh zeal for orthodoxy. 
the high road on every issue, but I'm, going to sh- I'm not going to show any love as I take that road. So what's the solution to that? What if that is sort of here in, in our assembly, sort of lying latent underneath the surface? What is the solution for us as a church? Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works you did at first. See, the solution takes on a series of commands. Remember, repent, and do. When someone is caught or confronted in their sin, it is normal for them to blame others, play the victim, evade, and run. God's solution is this. Remember, repent, and do the works like you did the way you did them before, with love for God and love for others. He doesn't just leave it there. He actually gives a warning. Look at the latter part of verse 5. If not, if, if not what? If, if the Ephesian church doesn't remember, repent, and do, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In case you missed it the first time, look at what he says. Unless you what? Repent. The Ephesian church, believers, needed to have a change of attitude and a change of heart and a change of direction. Not just lip service. Yeah, yeah, this is the message. Okay. No, it's actually a full turnabout to living out in obedience what the exalted Christ is telling them to do. Separatism unaccompanied by love is insufficient. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. Now, In conclusion, look at chapter 2, verse 7. And every every letter in chapter 2 to 3 is going to end with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's words to His church. Jesus, during His earthly ministry, would often say, let the one who has an ear to hear listen. What does He mean by that? Okay, listen to the instruction and obey it with your heart. And then he gives this challenge to overcome, or as some uh, commentators call it, the eschatological promise. Look at the latter part of verse 7. To the one who conquers, by the way, that's a recurring theme in the book of Revelation. Of the 26 New Testament uses, 15 are in Revelation. Here's one of these encouragements. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you know our victory can only happen through Christ. We're about to move to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So he's not simply using this athletic and military metaphor to be conquerors because we actually have it within ourselves to do so. But we can actually live in obedience and with love to God and others because of the grace which Christ provides by His Spirit through His Word. Look at the promised gift, the tree of life. And the promise is that you have access to it to eat from it. In Genesis 2.9, Adam and Eve were not allowed to partake of this tree because of their sin. And God placed a cherubim, an angel, with a, with a sword to protect access to it. 
But now the curse of the lost paradise is reversed in Christ. And in some ways, only the cross of Christ could be a tree that produces life. And I'm not sure if that's the actual tree. I don't know what the identity of the tree is. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? It was the curse that banished Adam and Eve out of the garden so they could not access the tree of life. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The tree that gives life this morning is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Broken body and shed blood. So what about us? As we move to the Lord's Supper, which is an invitation of response, where we are saying we are having communion with God and with each other. And we take this in remembrance of what He's done. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. And what He's about to do until He comes. What about us? What if we had the best documents for a church in Denver and the most precise doctrinal statement but did not have love for one another? Does that please God? No. So let's have both. What if we had the best building in Denver, the best children's program, door-to-door visitation every night but did not show love to one another? Is that enough? No. What if we did everything God wanted us to do by way of separating from false apostles, hosting conferences on pluralism and world religions and how that's wrong, and took the high road on every issue but had not love? What would the exalted Christ walking amidst this lampstand say to us? Repent. Remember. Do the right works. But do them with that love and that enthusiasm you had at first, that love for God and love for one another. A church needs to repent when they practice a love-deficient separatism. So this morning, as we come to the table, I'm going to ask us corporately a question, not just us individuals, but us as a church. Do we love one another tangibly, objectively, clearly? Do we content ourselves on just saying the right things, having a Bible answer, speaking truth into a situation? But is that truth accompanied by love? Do people sense the fragrance of God from us when they're around us, when we talk about one another, when we talk about Christ, when they hear us, when they observe us? Does our life as a body portray Christ or only a cold rigid separatism. It's striking that in John's smaller letters, the test for orthodoxy is actually love. He says this, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He said, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Last passage. John writes, beloved 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Remember, repent, and do right works with love for God and others.